might feel to you like we have been in Matthew for a while. Uh, one of the things, though, that I think we've done over the last three or four years is spent a fair amount of time in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament sets the baseline for so much that we know and believe and understand. And one of the things that is established in the Old Testament is that sin is a problem. Sin is a force to be reckoned with. Sin cannot be ignored. It's there and it is a problem. And we could all say from our own lives, amen. But it's kind of like being on an airplane with a two-year-old who's got cabin pressure issues and is just screaming bloody murder. You can't get away. It's there. There's a problem that needs to be dealt with. That is established crystal clear in the Old Testament. Another thing that's established crystal clear in the Old Testament is that we don't have the tools to fix what is broken. It is like every home improvement project at my house. Don't have the right tools, don't have the right expertise, cannot do it. It is not in me. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament from least to greatest, from first to last. It's inevitable. It's perpetual. It's ongoing. Failure, 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 failure. Pick a leader. They stumble and fall. Pick someone who God did something enormous through. He or she stumbled and he or she fell. God often calls his people back. In the midst of this story, he calls them back, usually through a prophet, sometimes through calamity, and the call for them is to repent. Often, that call to repent is a two-pronged call to repent. The first prong being, clean up the mess, clean up your life, clean up these things that you've been doing, which most often takes the shape, takes the form of false idol worship, pagan worship cultural gods that they worshiped for protection, believing that they could get agricultural uh, protection and production. Uh, Often it's setting aside, pushing away with these cultural, regional gods. And the second prong is then clean up and then commit, recommit, return to the law, return to the good things that you're doing. Uh, One example, Jeremiah The word of the Lord through Jeremiah says this, Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you, talking to the people. They said, Each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Away from your wicked ways, clean up and reform your actions. Do good things. Do not follow other gods or serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your ancestors, but you have not paid attention or listened to me. But let's be honest, you haven't paid attention before. You aren't listening now. It's a pattern. And so as Jesus comes in Matthew, as we see this whole, the title, the king and his kingdom, Jesus comes, talks about a kingdom, talks about his kingdom coming near, talks about a new covenant, the next work of God to restore, to call back humanity to himself, uh, to undo what was done by the sin, to undo the brokenness that was done by sin, and to restore us uh, to himself. The problem is, is many of us live as if Jesus did not come, did not make the Holy Spirit available to us, did not tear the temple veil to create unimaginable access to God. And so when we spiritually fall on our faces, we tend to revert 
to what we see patterned in the Old Testament, and we try to clean up our lives on our own. We try to make right whatever we've made wrong in some way, and then we try to clean up the best we can and commit and recommit. It's spiritual New Year's resolutions, that sort of thing. And what happens is we tend to find ourselves in this circle, this perpetual circle, this sequence uh, where we fall, we try on our own strength to clean up and recommit, and then we discover that doesn't work well, we fall again, and the outcome is increasing, uh, deepening despair, and this heavy burden that becomes heavier and heavier and heavier. And so if you're here this morning, and you are or have ever struggled with spiritual weariness, we are going to see a simple promise from Jesus to the very complex problem of our spiritual weariness. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in Matthew chapter 11? I'm going to start with the first six verses, and we're going to see John the Baptist is the one who is spiritually weary, tired, spiritually fatigued in this passage, and how Jesus comes alongside of him. The first point this morning is simply this. Jesus is attentive, Jesus cares for, Jesus comforts the spiritually weary. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Put yourself in John's shoes for a minute. John knew from a very young age that his calling was to be a way maker, to prepare the way for the Messiah, to prepare the people to be receptive to Jesus, to the Messiah, to the rescuer when he would come. I imagine if you're John, you're thinking when Jesus comes, you're probably going to get a great prestigious gig in Jesus' new work. Whatever that's going to look like, you're going to get to be Jesus' co-pilot on this new cool thing, that saving, powerful, judging work that Jesus is going to do. Uh, I imagine if you're John, and some have responded favorably to you, some have repented of their sins and followed, some have been opposed to you, and you've been the recipient of hostility, you might be thinking, when Jesus comes, all will be made right. All of the difficulty will go away, and John will get to ride Jesus' coattails to glory. Instead, a very faithful John finds himself in prison Herod put him there because John was unwavering and faithful and said to Herod, your immoral marriage to your brother's wife is unlawful, is immoral. Herod didn't like that, threw him in prison. John must know at this point that this isn't going to end well. So he sends his servants, he sends his followers to Jesus, and they ask this question, are you the one who we are waiting for, or should we wait for another? Can you imagine John saying, I've been preaching that you are going to come and rescue. Is it you or is it someone else? Because I'm not seeing the whole rescuing thing. I've been preaching, Matthew 3, 11, and 12. John preaches that Jesus will come and judge. I imagine John's thinking, I said you were going to come and judge. 
Rome is still in control. Herod still seems to be in charge. I'm being assaulted in prison. Are you the one that's going to come judge, or is there going to be another? John needs to be reminded that his life, that his effort, that his faithfulness were not wasted. So his followers come to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you the one, or should we wait for another? Has anyone here ever grown weary of doing good? Has anyone here ever wondered, has my effort, has my faithfulness been for naught? Can anyone relate to that spiritual doubt, that spiritual wondering? I think it happens every time what, is, what seems impossible in front of us, what seems impossible in our circumstances, eclipses our view of God, eclipses our view of what he's doing in front of us. I think of maybe uh, young people who are looking towards their future and maybe feeling some sense of weariness as they look forward to maybe a family or a career uh, or a job uh, or some next step that they want to take that just feels absolutely beyond them, absolutely beyond imagination. I think of some of you grandparents who are praying for your children, you are praying for your grandchildren, and you're growing weary, wondering if God is going to be faithful to them as you see difficult choices plaguing them and their families. Think about those far from the Lord, wondering if there is a God who would or could ever come to them, weary because of the pain, weary because of the sin of their past, weary because of the doubt of their past and even, even presently. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, John, stop whining, you baby. You're in prison. I'm going to be crucified. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't call him a baby. He doesn't belittle his weariness, right? Jesus also doesn't say something entirely useless like, hey, John, keep your head up. You can do it. Hey, John, keep your head up. Tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow will be a better day. Jesus doesn't berate him, doesn't beat him over the head with scripture or some sort of lecture about why John shouldn't be weary, or if John just had more scripture memorized, this wouldn't be a problem. Jesus instead says, tell John what you see. Go back, tell your master, tell him what you see. In verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepros- those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That comes out of Isaiah 35 and 36. Things prophesied that the one day the Messiah, the rescuer, would do. Jesus says to John, your effort, your life, your sacrifice was not wasted. Well done. You did what you were supposed to do. I am here and the kingdom is going forward. John needed to be reminded who Jesus was and what he was doing. That Jesus' kingdom was going forward even though John was locked up. Jesus was in charge even though John was in shackles. And so sometimes we just need to be reminded God's actually doing really great things in our midst and internationally. Uh, Maybe by coincidence, I got to read through an Alliance update on a bunch of ministry, missionary things happening overseas. And so I thought, what a great time to just read you a few snippets, like just a couple lines each, to remind us what God is doing in case our circumstances, the difficult, seemingly impossible things in our lives, are currently eclipsing our view of God and what he's doing. Here's just a couple things uh, that came across my desk this week. Um, One, uh, the Alliance sent out its first deaf missionary 
this year. So apparently there's approximately 466 million deaf people in the world. Only 2% are believers. The Alliance finally sent out its first deaf uh, missionary. Uh, In Senegal, 280 people prayed to repent and follow Jesus at an Alliance medical mission uh, venture. Some of you know that as part of the Alliance Missionary Network, we have a department called Marketplace Ministry where they uh, build business or enterprise in a community and use that as a missionary outpost. Uh, In one of those in South Asia, um, seven employees and six family members recently prayed to receive Christ. Tribal women in Peru have been, who have never been allowed to go to school, who have never learned to read, are being taught by our short-term trips, the Envision branch of the Christian Missionary Alliance missionary work. Um, they're learning to read for the first time ever, and the Bible is their primary textbook. After a year of ministry in one Balkan city, a young lady has given her life to the Lord, and to the best that they can tell, she is the very first indigenous convert ever in that city. So, so God's at work all over the place doing things that there was a list of like 50 things on the list that they sent out. And by the way, you can have access to that at Christian Missionary Alliance. It's like cmalliance.org forward slash news. And you can get regular updates of what's going on all over the field. The takeaway being God is clearly at work in all types of people in all places on this planet. And sometimes our circumstances eclipse who he is and what he's doing, and we needed to be reminded of his big work, and it causes our difficulty to become very small. Jesus is attentive to John's weariness. Next, Jesus is going to condemn the spiritually arrogant, obstinate posture of the crowd that he's speaking to. So we're going to continue. Verses 7 through 24 is uh, some rough words from Jesus for these spiritually hardened individuals. I'll pick it up in verse 10. Jesus is going to remind them of Old Testament prophecy and say, John is the one you've been waiting for. John is the one who has been prophesied about that he would prepare the way for the Messiah and you haven't listened to him. And Jesus is going to say, you haven't listened to me and pronounce judgment. Uh, Starting in verse 10, Matthew 11. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? Jesus is talking to this whole crowd. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates or their friends. He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge or a memorial piece and you did not mourn. John came neither eating or drinking and they said, he's a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And and now the pronouncement of judgment. Listen to this. Then he began to denounce the cities where the most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus says, how, how, what do I even compare you? What do I, how, how, do I, how do I compare you? As he's talking to this group, and he talks about kids playing in the marketplace, and they sing uh, an upbeat, uh, something that you might dance to, and nobody listens. They hear the music, but nobody's listening. Nobody is responding. Nobody's dancing. Then they play something sad, something mournful. People hear the music, but nobody's listening. Nobody responds. Jesus said it doesn't matter how the message is presented. You aren't listening. He says, John came and he didn't eat or drink. And you said he's a demon. The son of man came. Jesus says, I came eating and drinking. And you called me a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't matter how we approached you. You wouldn't. You refused to listen. You were spiritually arrogant and obstinate. It doesn't matter who came to you. The greatest one born of a woman, John the Baptist, or Jesus, the Son of Man, you wouldn't listen. You were spiritually obstinate, spiritually arrogant, unwilling to reckon with Jesus' words, unwilling to honestly consider and engage with what Jesus said about who he was as the Son of God, God himself, and what he came to do to make payment for our sins, to stand in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve that should separate us from God forever and ever and ever and ever, and that Jesus came to make a way so that we could be restored to him forever and ever and ever. Jesus says it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter what was said, it doesn't matter who came to you, you are stubborn and obstinate and you refuse to listen. It is fair to say that in a group this size that there must be some in here who have heard from a number of people, friends, loved ones, family members have tried to tell you about Jesus, have tried to say, you really should give Jesus serious thought. You really should consider following him with your whole life. And you've absolutely been unwilling to consider it. Maybe you've seen genuine evidence of life change and you've been unwilling, you've refused to consider that Jesus might be right about what he says. Maybe you know some of the Bible and you might even agree with some of it and say, yeah, I think actually what the Bible says about life and sin, creation and why the world is the way it is, I think actually the biblical worldview best explains what we see happening around us. Jesus is an authority, but he's not my authority. An unwillingness to believe and our unwillingness to believe shows itself by our unwillingness to repent and make him the primary authority in our life. It's kind of like if you're out in the lobby and, and you see some kids running around and uh, you say to someone else's kid, hey, slow down, stop running, which good luck getting in the way between them and donuts, but you can try. Um, stop running, and they might stop 50-50. They might look at you and you might get a scowl, their face might shrivel just just a bit, and then they are likely to go on their way, and, and you know what you're thinking. You're not my boss. 
you're not my mom. You're not my dad. You don't have authority over me. You're not my boss. For many of us, when it comes to spiritual things, we know a lot, we have heard a lot, we have been unwilling to believe, and spiritually we have that same posture with Jesus. You're not my boss. If that's you today, uh, Jesus' next words are, are, are very harsh, uh, are, are very clear. Uh, they, they warrant further consideration if you fear you may be in that camp. Uh, Jesus lists the most well-known, the most wicked cities of the day and in history. And he points his fingers to these Jews and says, You are worse off than they Judgment day will be better for them than it will be for you. Because if they had had all the chances that you've gotten, they would have repented long ago. It's hard to not see us in that category, right? It's hard to not say we have more opportunities to hear about Jesus, to hear his word than any other civilization that has ever existed. You can get online right now and literally Pick your topic. Pick a teacher, preacher, seminary. What you, you can get, ac- you have access to everything. There are so few barriers between us and hearing and receiving uh, the gospel. It's hard to not imagine that Jesus might say, if he were here pointing his finger at us, that it will be more bearable for those in Las Vegas or wherever than for you. If the miracles that have been performed in your midst were performed there, they would have repented long ago you see that jesus jesus is not uh jesus is not messing around with this audience is he jesus is not just casually preaching saying oh i sure hope you guys liked the message today jesus isn't just wanting them to agree with him to marvel at his power or to go wow he really preaches as one with authority that's something that they said often he's not just satisfied in in maybe discovering that some are spiritually curious, right? He is calling them to repentance. What is it that they're not doing? They're not believing and repenting, right? Repenting to uh, the feeling of remorse that leads us to turn away from what we're doing and towards Jesus and towards his ways. We understand about repentance uh, that all of us are invited to, but Romans 2 says that not all of us will respond with repentance. Some will be obstinate. Some will have hard hearts and will be unwilling to consider spiritual things, unwilling to consider the things of Jesus. Jesus says, woe to you. It will be more bearable, more bearable for the most egregious sinners that you can think of than for you that have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity and have been unwilling to believe and to repent. Jesus condemns the spiritually arrogant. The last point this morning, Jesus calls all of us to enter his rest. Uh, We said that that Jesus has a very simple promise for a very complex problem of of spiritual weariness, and Jesus is not going to give us ten steps on how to enter his rest. He is simply going to offer himself as our rest. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Verse 28, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You won't earn rest. It's not the second level, the third level, or the fourth level of Christianity. I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus is not calling these people to clean up their lives, to try to clean the outside of the car, to scrub with a brush and with the soapy water and to clean it up and make it look good. He's not calling them to clean up everything, to stop doing everything that they've done and just start doing good things and that will make it all better. Jesus offers himself as the only solution to all that ails us. Jesus offers himself as the only solution to all that wearies us. It's all found in him. Verse 28 says, Come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. What's keeping you from coming to Jesus this morning? Jesus has just said in verses 25 and 27 that these things are often hidden from those who seem well-to-do, from those who seem smart, intelligent, savvy in their own mind, wise in their own eyes, but tend to be revealed to those who come humbled as little children, understanding their spiritual impoverishment, their spiritual neediness, and what Jesus wants to do for them, and how little, that nothing that they can do for themselves. What keeps you from coming to Jesus? In, in what way might you relate with the one who thinks himself or herself to be wise in their own estimation and your sense of your own wisdom keeps you from believing and submitting to Jesus. We're Douglas County. We don't ask for help, right? We're Douglas County. We can fix things on our own. I have never lived anywhere where virtually every house that we looked at had some sort of unpermitted work done. It was the strangest thing to me when we were told oh yeah, that's not permitted. So we crossed that off our list right away. I've just Everywhere I've ever lived, if something was unpermitted, why would you even show me that house? That's a lawsuit. I'm going to get sued. You're going to get sued. Stay away. Here, everything is, is, is unpermitted. We can fix everything. Or we, we not, it's not necessarily that we can. It's we do. And we try. We don't ask for help. We don't ask for handouts, right? It's the path to rugged independence. Sadly, it is also the path to eternal separation. From God. What is keeping you from coming to Jesus? What is keeping you from taking his yoke upon you? Yoke has this, um, uh, the metaphor is that of a animal with the yoke that sort of breaks its spirit or controls where it goes. There's a submission aspect to this. I think about uh, the uh, my oldest son's basketball team uh, that I'm coaching, and so in the coach 
uh, team uh, player relationship. There is submission that happens, which means that when they're out on the court or when we're at practice, when we're doing something, the players don't listen to the other voices. Mom in the crowd, dad in the crowd, aunt in the crowd, friends in the crowd. They don't listen to those voices. They listen to the coach. They prioritize the coach's voice above all the other voices. When they don't understand what they've been asked to do or it doesn't make sense to them or it doesn't seem fair that they have to run as much as they're being asked to run, they do it anyway out of submission, right, to the coach. We submit to Jesus when it makes sense, when it doesn't. We submit to Jesus when it seems fair, when it doesn't. We submit to Jesus when we can see what he's doing and when we can't see what he's doing. That's this idea of yoke. And it's interesting that Jesus says, um, come to me, all you're wearing, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, learn from me. And what are you going to learn? He says, learn from me. I am gentle and I, I am humble in heart. In other words, if you do this, If you come to me, rather than trying to figure out life on your own, clean it up, make it clean, keep it clean, if you come to me, if you take my yoke upon you, rather than navigating your own way, rather than being a spiritual person who decides for yourself what is true and what is not true, if you take my yoke of submission, you will learn from me, Jesus says, that I am gentle and humble in spirit. Do you experience Jesus as gentle and humble in spirit, or do you experience him as a taskmaster? If you experience him as a taskmaster, that is not what he's called you to. That's not who he is. That is man, that's humanity's distortion of who he is. And I want to call you out of that. He is gentle and humble in spirit. We might even flip the question, too, and say, do people experience you as gentle and humble in spirit? Or do they experience you as harsh and all about yourself? They experience you as gentle and humble in spirit. He says, I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not calling them to clean up, to commit, to recommit. He is calling them to believe and repent and orient their life around Jesus. And he will give them rest. They will not earn it. They come out of a system of earning. They come out of a system of enormous burdens, of impossible laws, impossible demands. That is what is normative for them. Jesus says, this isn't that. You come to me, I will give you rest. Do you have the rest of Jesus? Do you experience Jesus' rest in your heart and in your soul? I want to end with a a, a written uh, prayer, and then we'll have the worship team come up and lead us in a closing song. We'll have prayer team uh, up during that song, and you are welcome to come up for prayer uh, during the song. You are welcome to wait after the song. If you are spiritually weary and would like prayer, uh, allow the team to just care for you in that way. If you're someone who maybe resonates with the obstinate, cold, calloused, hardened, disinterested, uh, you got an excuse for everything about why you're unwilling to believe and repent and make Jesus the ultimate authority. Uh, Maybe this morning is the morning that changes for you. We'd love to tell you uh, how from God's word to to come to Jesus, to believe and to repent. Let's close with this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I've always loved this invitation, but sometimes I'm desperate for it. And this is one of those little stretches. I feel like I've got seven seven plates to spin, but I'm only a three-plate spinner. I praise, bless, and adore you for the promise of rest, 
in the middle of the muchness and the manyness. Sometimes I take too much on myself and nobody's to blame for that but me. But other times, like this one, there's a convergence of important stuff that demands more energy, mental focus, and time than I have. So today I readily and gladly cry, help. Grant me rest in the middle of a 24-hour day with 72 hours of demands. Jesus, thank you for not giving me a lecture on time management, but your gentle and humble heart and your yoke of grace. Reading through the Gospels, I don't ever remember encountering a busy, frustrated, irritated, rushed spirit in you. You always spent time with your Father, and you always accomplished his will. May it be the same for me. So I fully expect your Holy Spirit to give me rest well before my to-do list becomes a now-done list. Yoked to you, I trust you for a palpable sense of your presence and a keen sense of priorities. Lead me through this stretch at the pace of grace. Help me do what I do today with wisdom and kindness and for your glory. In fact, may my to-love list stay much more my priority than my to-do list. In your loving and powerful name, amen.